Hi, I'm Lucy. And I'm Pinky. And you're listening to Thank Folk for Feminism. This week, we are delighted to be talking to the wonderful Stevie Smith of the Americana Music Association UK, who talks us through balancing motherhood, owning your own record store and gender balanced lineups. And we've got an awesome segment with fun anecdotes from Catherine Roberts, Deb Hanna from Megson and Jackie Oates. But first up, as promised at the end of our last episode, here's part two of our interview with Nancy Kerr. Thinking about that kind of like feminist aspect, right? That's, I mean, that's something you do a lot. It's on your blog, it's within your music. Like, why is it important to have that running through the scene through your music through the stories I think I did it's not conscious in terms of like oh I'll write a women's type song now not in the same way that it was for mum because it literally was the you know that was the the message that was the lens that was how those women wanted to define themselves and amplify that story but it's still the same idea it's still the same idea of amplifying voices that haven't been heard enough and I guess in some ways I'm responding to bits of the tradition that I feel are cut off to me because they're misogynistic or violent or problematic or just don't do it for me. So I guess I'm trying to maybe up the the balance there a bit and and make those voices heard. But it's not it's it would be wrong for me to yeah to say that it's my my overt plan. It's much more connected to what I said before about how that's in me. So it's unthinkable that I wouldn't tell that story with that lens. And actually what I most enjoy doing is a kind of a smuggling trick so that you can take the song on every level, but you scratch it all the way down and it's a feminist song but that might not be the first part of it that you meet. And that's not because feminism is some unpalatable truth or something. It isn't. It's, it's better. It's just a better thing. It's a better way of being. It's a cream. It's a herbal cream. <laughs> but, you know, because I think that if you're trying to realistically with my song, I always say this, like, you know, that you go to a Grace Peachy gig and you want to change the world and you go to my gig and you want to get better at recycling. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I use like in a way of putting myself down but now like recycling is really important so it doesn't really work as a a self-deprecating joke but no it's you know if realistically if I'm singing to maybe between 25 and 100 people a little song about bees really what I'm looking at is that internal switch inside each individual person right that switches them into something that just fans a flame or starts a pilot light or whatever and goes that makes me feel this, I might do that. It's that like microcosmic, isn't it? It's that small and that um, personal for me. Um, and so I really need the story or the song. I need it to function at all of those levels. So I know that those, the thing that it switches on in people is is honorable, that they might, you know, go, I'm gonna relate to that in a different way, or I'm gonna do that better, or I'm gonna keep doing that thing I do. I feel a bit stronger today having heard that so I'm going to keep going with my allotment project or you know whatever it is um so that's my that's not a very clear answer but I think that's my um version that's my evolution of 
political songwriting. That's my knitting together of the personal political, which a lot of women of my generation have spent their time thinking about, I think. Um, yeah, sort of post, post kind of second wave. Well, yeah, and what you're echoing is very much what we were when we were talking to Peggy about like a song can't be a conversation it's a conversation starter it's that pilot light as you say yeah. right so the question then becomes well what's the the vehicle that I want to use to start that conversation or get that person thinking yeah you know and for you you know that's obviously very much driven by folklore and nature and, and yeah. vehicles to do it right it is yeah so first of all the folklore and the folk the folk shapes thing is just it's too good not to use do you know what i mean those old songs like i re it's not that i recycle old songs i don't really write songs that sound like old folk songs but they come from the same ideas so the same structures it's like what can i do with this okay 200 years ago someone did that with that story so i i could you know think about that it's that kind of inform informed by it sort of thing and sometimes i even teach like the use of really really chunky good templates from folk songs and that's the starter and then you can do what you want with it it doesn't matter if it's a folk song by the end of it it started with a two-line thing that people have sung since singing began how cool is that you know that's ours isn't it no one owns that so we can use that to tell our stories and i think nature's in some ways the same i'm very i i had a bit of a sheltered sort of idea of how people wrote about nature i don't think i had an idea a real sense of how much what an archetype and what um what a a, a vessel um nature writing was really i think my idea of nature writing when i was a kid was um something like kestrel for a knave and maybe Watership Down, actually, because that's very folkloric, isn't it? That's about storytelling as much as about rabbits. But what I love is, and I, you know, not to, to do down any nature writing or anything of that, but actually I really love the kind of slightly more gritty stuff that's about those tensions of, like I talk about nature all the time, but I can see one tree right now from my window. I live right in the inner city and that's a lot of people's experience. A lot of my students during lockdown, it was like they, you know, going out for their daily exercise or something was, is so urban and they live in flats and it's like, we might open a window and that'll be, you know, the connection with nature that's gonna help us all. It's really a privilege, isn't it? Being able to climb a mountain is such a privilege. So I don't know that I'm really always that comfortable about writing the climbing a mountain song, but I do like the sort of opening a window and hearing a magpie sort of song. And again, that's my little political lens is doing that. Um, but I think I, everyone kind of wants originality, don't they? they want to do something that has that continuum with the past, but is something that, that no one's quite put before. Um, so, and I think nature, your own interaction with the, the, the natural world is a way of doing that because no one sees it quite like you. Um, so I think there's something there. I don't know how it relates really to um, to feminine stuff or to to female or or to gender. Um, I think it's what you said a lot, doesn't it? I think uh, for me, the when you write in that style, it. It was great to hear you say earlier about how your your songs kind of can come in layers. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's what kind of like this nature thing is for people. You know, it's they can just 
listen to the magpie and watch its story or they can find the deeper meanings and all of that is folk and all of that is relevant and it is yeah and it's also at some level climate activism if you're then going to go wouldn't if even if the basest part of this is wouldn't it be sad if you didn't hear that bird that that's why i think it works really well and there's a lot about at at the moment there's a lot of dialogue about again that internal switch of going you like your walk in the countryside that may well go so let's you know let's look at what what touches you at this point and how that could turn you in some way into an activist which i still think is the the focus but yeah and i think again that um i mean i was going to say there's lots there is lots of connectivity between song and poetry imagery about nature and and discussions about gender and gender roles and it's lovely to see how often that comes up i do a um, a lecture a couple of lectures with some of my undergraduates um one on just sort of reusing ballads and how ballads come up so i've worked a lot with the silky ballad and that kind of shape-shifting skin thing and i use that to talk about women's experience in in um and, and women characters in folk tales and where the power is in that. And then also about gender roles and um, kind of trans rights and identities and non-binary kind of conversations and, and experiences. And they, like those, those that skin, that song that you put on, it never fails. It functions really well to do all of those things, um, whoever's holding it. So I do a thing with my students where we look at different people who've used the same story, same legend, but lots of different ways. Faye Heal does some gorgeous stuff again about, um, I think women and particularly um, parents and mothers experiences. Um, And yeah, and there's just gorgeous love songs. There's some lovely poetry again about um, uh, gender expression, all using the same that one story of the woman who has her skin taken away from her and needs to get back into it to be her proper shape to go back in the the sea. So it they never stop giving. And I was thinking this morning, that thing of, I don't know if you ever get asked it, but that thing of, oh, what if these songs, there are these songs in the tradition and they're really problematic, but we shouldn't erase them, should we? You know, because they tell us something about ourselves. And my opinion of that has always been kill it with fire, actually, which is not very measured. You know, my mum is much more magnanimous and is much more like, well, if it's still around, maybe it does a thing and maybe you can find your voice in it and again, find the confidence to go in there and and move it, make it move around a bit, stretch it and change it and look at the power. Look who's saying what and like very creative reimagining of it. And a lot of my students are doing that really fluently, you know, they're just doing it. Excellent. But I'm all like... <sighs> it is i mean and what i was i was getting to was the idea that folk music has to function for me so and division isn't a very useful function dividing people and alien people that's not the function the function is to get us to work together so i think um at the root of my kill it with fire is if it's not functioning anymore or not functioning to bring us together stuff it but if you can still take those functional bits from it and make it do something else then that's even, that's just so exciting. That's so exciting. And that in some ways, I think for a lot of us was our apprenticeships into songwriting. So it's like you've spent so much, so much time adapting the tradition to be in your own voice that you then eventually go, oh, I might as well write my own song. Actually, I have all the tools now to, to start a new story. So I love that relationship between the two. And that's why it's important for me that I, I'm careful with what I what I throw away. Um, but yeah.
I just, I don't think I'm ever going to let go of the image of you just stomping in with a flamethrower, killing all the misogynistic songs. I'm down with it. No, I think, um, I think um, it's really interesting to hear you say that because um, I, I think for a long time, I wasn't even, re- you know, it was just that's the song I wasn't really listening yeah well I was listening but you know what I mean I wasn't twigging I wasn't seeing it through the feminist lens no. and then you notice and great word you used earlier you realize it's gross <laughs> and um <laughs> and one of my most favorite things to do is to rewrite the songs or rewrite the endings so people think that they're hearing the blacksmith or whatever and then you get to the end and you know she comes out the victor and all that kind of stuff and I think that yeah. that can that that thing that you're talking about you and your students uh, you know rewriting and reworking not only is it great because it means we have a song that represents yeah a powerful woman but it's also good because for those of us and I include myself in this for a period that are just bumbling along not noticing that these songs are problematic we sit there and go oh blimey that can be like a really fun way to raise this (laughs) yeah to raise that that lens and those those questions oh you're so so right and actually for those people I'm not one of them clearly but for those people who really do think we might you know by changing these things we are kind of spoiling it and that we're being um ahistorical or whatever to be honest again if you do enough looking at 75 versions of the same song which is my idea of a night out at the moment Um, (laughs) you do find those stories you know you say blacksmith there's that wonderful end where she says so girls if you must love love one another which is a much more you know it's it's still open but it's a much more kind of up up ending that's the only ending i will ever sing of that song You know, so, and she's very much not pale and wan. And that's really, I think that's gorgeous. So you can still be very authentic to the source, I think. if Especially if you view it as slightly, you know, subcultural sort of subversive stuff. I was, uh, my one's Barbara Allen. So the first year that I taught at Leeds and I had this incredible cohort by chance of all female um, singers and songwriters. And as our first task, I just set them, I don't normally give singers very much repertoire it's much more about them finding and falling in love with songs of their own which i think is really important but um i did give them i gave every singer and a different version of barbara allen because there are hundreds of them and i just thought it'd be a good one and i've sung versions of it all my life and i was like yeah I was like, i've just sung this and i think it's fine is it fine i don't know and these young women brought this song back to me I said, right, how did you get on? I gave one an Irish, a Scots, and an American version. And they were like, we hate this. We hate this song. (laughs) Why? What's going on? What's going on here? They were like, and one of them said, I've rewritten it. I've called it the stalker. (laughs) I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, you you have got a point. So they really hated, or not hated, but like really responded in a very authentic way for them um, to the fact that this guy, you know, she was not in love with this man. And so he kind of passively aggressively expires. 
And they were like, that's emotional blackmail. That is not okay. This woman is not responsible for the fact that she is not in love with him. That is not, they were like, this is toxic, red flags. We would not go out with this guy either, you know. And also the fact that they then talk about Barbara Allen as like the worst woman in the whole world. You know, it's victim blaming. And I just loved, loved, loved that lens. And I also was a bit like, Nancy, were you really paying attention for the last 30 years that you've been singing this? But then again, so I wouldn't kill Barbara Allen with fire because it's got those things in it. I've sung it for years because I think it's really interesting how fallible that romantic story is. It, for me, it's always been about two people who are in love and it just, and it's, my versions are always quite opaque and quite like, we don't know why it can't happen, but there are times when that just can't happen. And I think that's lovely. I think that's a lovely kind of open, messy human story. And they saw something really different in it. And they saw something really, um, yeah, they, they put this very strong kind of feminist thing on it. But they also still went and sang the song and found those depths and found those tensions and really told the story. Um, so just, I'll, I'll never, yeah, I'll never stop thinking of what they've they've given me because my younger students especially i think have given me a lot of language for how people are, are talking about gender now and it's i think that's really valuable it's really helpful and i really like asking them you know tell me what what what's happening what what does this mean for you because it's all very well me putting my 45 year old eye on this um but it's that barbara allen moment shows you how different an eye that is um so yeah we then talked about some interesting topics around folk music that Nancy's students had been working on. But as it's their work, we're going to leave it there and maybe we'll get them on the show in the future. Our conversation then turned to how feminism has become so disjointed today. Across the board, actually, around all of this kind of stuff yeah. around feminism. Yeah. There's an interconnection that needs to happen. We've become quite fragmented. We have become fragmented. And that's what I mean about this... I'm so happy to hear you say that because it reminds me of I, I spent a lot of time being a, a kind of young accessory a sort of youngster in but in um, all female or all non-male um, spaces and I feel really cut off from that and felt where, and when one of, as I say when my students are doing really deep work in this and there's this kind of flutter of okay this is big and is this gonna is this shocking and that's again that thing of the folk scene with a small c being quite conservative it's like oh this feels like a frightening conversation and actually and it is a frightening conversation they're frightening subject matters but when did i become divorced when did my idea of what's okay in a professional music capacity become divorced from what my mum's generation was doing with women's spaces and with conversations about everything you know why did that become polarized we should have knitted it more together and i don't think we did and i'm not sure why that is i was just thinking i like for me it does link back to we were saying about the kind of the iterative conversations that have come up and having spoken to peggy and then speaking yeah. to you and that i think will come again yeah and for me it's back to some of it is about that community center stuff and how do you get like the the folk clubs and the folk scene as a like thing but actually take it back 40 50 years to the consciousness raising groups of feminism yeah. it was women coming together and sharing stories it was. yeah it was. talk it may have been through music it may yeah. have, you know and that is the folk tradition is a tradition of sharing stories down through words and through song yeah 
how have we ended up 40 years later in this you go here you know and I'm I'm the same like I'm really excited about doing the podcast because I was like I've lost the music aspect of my life right I've become a sexual violence professional yeah I love and it's great but I'm not just that I am a music lover and somebody that's always been really engaged and creative in that Mm. it brings that back together it creates that co-creation of conversation and that is yeah why has the world become so individualized yeah I want yeah Lucy Thatcher yeah (laughs) I didn't think I was gonna go there but I am it's the it's the you know you can't be a mum and be professional and it be celebrated you can't be you know and to to achieve our goals we have to be so solely focused on career or to appear to be so solely focused on our careers you know regardless actually as whether you've got children or not I wonder if that's part of why we started to consider is this something I should say out loud on stage yes and if you do choose to say it out on uh, out loud on stage that better be the thing you define yourself by and also other people especially music journalists better agree that that's what you're defined by otherwise it's not going to swing it so I've spent a long time with people telling me you're not a political songwriter are you with this very decisive concrete thing and I think that's um connected to this as you say this compartmentalization of role um which is economic so you can sell it so you can stick a thing in it and sell it but why have I I'm I'm the same pinky why have I uh, I, uh, kind of lost that like things should have been more radical for me as I got older I know they they don't say that do they they say like it's um you get more conservative as you get older, but no, no one I know has done that. But in some ways, like putting me on a stage or like putting, you know, there's like a political artist on stage, but then you you have to decide whether you're that or whether you're something else. And it's not very comfortable to go between the two. So being radical and being a folky has to be the thing you are. You're not really allowed to like integrate and, and not have that as a, as a label, I suppose. It's labeling, which I think is... I think that is capitalism. I think that's that's just sort of Western economic, yeah, pressures. I don't know, but that we so we had a thing. Um, folk talks now. I don't know if you've uh, come. Did you have a chat? Any chats with those at all? Oh, with English folk expert. Yeah. Yes, we did one about gender balance actually. That one you did there. So there's like an open forum thing where they just keep a meeting open and people talk, musicians talk and stuff. And I went to a couple of them. And this is nothing to do with feminism, but it was just about that fragmentation. Like it was the first time I sat like this with people with actual recognition going on of saying things like that. It wasn't that great before, was it? It was like a group to set up. It's like where we came in, basically. It was a group to be set up to not just like ameliorate what's really really rough with covid but like what's we're going on with but like looking at into people's eyes and them going yeah it was really bad before actually it was really grim are you feeling like it was really grim before and it was just so great to hear it do you know what i mean just to feel like other people feel that as well um so yeah i think like there's lots of stuff i see on stage that feels and is wonderfully radical you know don't get me wrong there's there's great things and there's lots of conversations aren't there that like well i couldn't have imagined people having before um but there's also just then this kind of maybe a backlash people used to say backlash a lot do people still talk about backlash do you think 
don't know. It was definitely the language of sort of, yeah, consciousness raising and the women's movement, etc. And political correctness, I suppose, was sort of the thing. But I feel like there's, as things advance, certain really entrenched, um, um, I guess, yeah, kind of slightly more conservative parts kind of rush in to, to dampen it or to make up for it. So I guess that's always going to happen. But yeah, I'm with you. I think it's really it's important to to try and integrate all that again and find your whether it's your radical self or your musical self or bringing it all together and saying look I am all of these things and that's all part of my practice you know that's the key part isn't it I am all of these things yeah well and that's what I was thinking about because when we spoke about doing this podcast Lucy and it's like yeah Lucy brings the folk and I bring the feminism like it's like I think it's been hard for both of us to think we could be both right and we sit with some kind of imposter syndrome yeah and I think come to mechanism like this is you this is what you're good at this is what you do that's all you can have you cannot be this 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 and this yeah this fifth thing and maybe not be great at it but you have you either have to be good at it or forget it you're not yeah that's so interesting that imposter syndrome thing isn't it fast I'm fascinated by that I don't know if I've ever managed a proper conversation about it because I the kind of grumpy older feminist in me is incensed that my incredibly talented whatever mentees colleagues friends students would ever feel like that like I'm so cross about it maybe that's what that's the backlash that that's it oh, I think it is threat of from other people you know I spend my life feeling like I'm not a good enough feminist and I'm sure those messages come from the patriarchy yeah they're not mine they're not internal no and anyway what's wrong with being an imposter like I thought that's what venture capitalism was anyway like if we're <laughs> to like that I always say like I say especially again like yeah to my not just female but like my students and people who are asking I'm always like well you are if you're an artist like and this is the mum mum thing like I always think I've raised two kids okay it's been fine we're doing okay but like that's as a mum who's the breadwinner who's a folk singer I sing songs about bees and I've managed to put you know veggie burgers on the table for 10 years pretty much that's very silly that's a very silly thing (laughs) so actually the fact that I don't have imposter syndrome I don't think anyone should have imposter syndrome if I don't have it do you know what I I mean and I'm not it's not but I know that isn't what imposter syndrome is but I feel like I want to be the you know shark bait you know the people who swim the furthest out and you're like oh they're fine so I won't get bitten it's fine I kind of want to be the imposter shark bait and go look if you can do but I know that's not what it's about and it was it was for me I mean Lisa you're saying the thing about the the kind of living up to feminist expectations and for me it was being a woman in academia which really made me go oh excuse my language this is not very nice and I thought if this is not very nice for me as a white woman in her 40s with a postgrad like I'm not the most educated thing but I've got some stuff what an earth must it be like for someone from somewhere a little bit more curvier outside that it must be brutal because I really hated it and I agree I think it was structural I think it was set up to make me feel like a loser (laughs) so yeah little 
little tiny taster of the nasty there was definitely so but it's all good and I think what you do you've got a conversation haven't you because you've got even if it's even if it's only surface if you've got a feminist voice and a musical voice but you've actually got Lisa and Lucy talking to each other about both of those things that's the ideal unpacking I think it's just really it works really well that's really lovely to hear um and it's just oh my gosh it's just such a pleasure to chat to you today so at the end of our interview with Peggy she had a question for you and it actually quite well sums up the last question we'd written anyway I think Nancy is fantastic yeah I would probably ask her how on earth do you do so much in your life I feel proud and told off at the same time. <laughs> it's sort of what I'm going for. That's sort of the, the effect I want. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where I came in with this conversation, wasn't it? That was one of the first things I said was pre-COVID and like I'm not putting some weird glossy, you know, silver lining thing on a global pandemic. I'm definitely not doing that. Um, Pre-COVID, I was, I had, uh, usually I would run five separate projects a year, but some of them are just like being me or like being me in that band that always happens like being me being me and James other bands and then that would leave room for the thing or two things that would come in that were really exciting that you just have enough time for so like a songwriting commission which I'm you know that kind of thing um so lucky to be able to do that and juggle it but that's a lot of people to be and then of course live gigs fell off and I'm still, I have no time, but I think that might be part of that. Well, partly, actually, I've been being a mum much more. I was an absent mum for a lot of times because that's the only way I could compartmentalise working in situations that are not that child friendly, but still making a living and then coming home and not doing that, you know. So there's those different, different hats and different spaces, but I would rather, I'd love to be at home more and now I am. Um, but I'm still just as busy. I think all the time about my students and my course and I've got a songwriting commission to do, which I'm really looking forward to, which is due in March. I've got a band, you know, it's like it, it, you still, it's the swan thing where you're paddling and you're doing the graceful thing, but we know the paddling is going on. And um, yeah, the paddling is still going on. That's really just, it's wonderful actually that the, again as you say well you're not you're not putting gloss on a pandemic but I think it's important you were saying you were feeling in a positive mood today it's important to reflect on what it has given you which is you know a lot more time for work and a lot more time for being the parent you want to be and that your sons need you to be right now as they also navigate this weird world we live in so they're they're old enough to be really making sense of a lot of this and it's a really dark time and they're they're potentially very isolated and very vulnerable so yeah you do you want to be there you want to answer the questions don't you which you can't do from chiefly services <laughs> oh there is not much you can do from tv services i've found that's <laughs> holding up when it goes when it all goes down and um, i did want to say yeah uh, that it's that I hate the word time management because I know I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. It's more haphazard than that. But, you know, I can, I can write. I always, I think I, I find the social thing quite difficult and I find performance, I have to take a deep breath and really make it 
what I'm going to do. Do you know what I mean? It's not natural. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, so actually the chance to hunker down and to write is really lovely. And that, that's a luxury because I wrote my first solo album while I was breastfeeding in between other things that I was doing. I just used all the gaps. And I don't, you know, I can think about it a bit now. So that's that's a real, that's that's a plus. And that is, no one really makes sense of how family people or people with any kind of pressures on them can possibly create. You have to make an excuse to go and create something. Do you know what I mean? It's like a bit shameful. It's gonna nip off and write a song, which is my job, by the way, <laughs> I'm being for. But it's okay if I just go and quickly do a symphony, you know, that's <laughs> a lot of, not just women, but especially women. I think I needed to hear that actually, because I found I've written an album since I've had children. My kids are three and one, so very, very little. Yes. Um, but I found making time to write wasn't about other you know, it wasn't about my husband saying like, oh, do you have to, the boys need you or anything like that. It was all internalized. Like this is, um, you know, this is a luxury to go off and write, to have a me time. I can't possibly do that. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly me. Me too. I'm not saying that those pressures are explicit at all. They are, they're brought by me. They're brought by society and situations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, that's so, I'm so happy to hear you say that that's, that's echoed, especially since there's a great output. There is, you know, we come up with it and you come up with it and it's, we're proud of it, aren't we? We're so... And then you look back and think, how did I even do that? <laughs> I barely remember writing the songs. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, I remember I was sitting, I'm actually sitting right now where I used to sit when there was a baby's cot here, not um, Bronson's uh, tunes of the child ballads. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I was, I was like feeding a child and I remember the riff that I was writing in my head just, and that's what I mean about those folk things, you know, they might be quite, people like to call folk music simple and stuff and I don't think it is, but I do think you can pull it out of the air when you need a riff to put in the middle of your piece that you're recording the next day but the, the child's still awake and it's three and you're not going to be able to find your own eyes in the morning but like it's there it's ready it's done done that great and that you know that's i'll never i don't want to go back to that way of working but on that sets us up for really good practice later on creative just functionality <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with exploring exploring that over the course of a lifetime as songwriters yeah. you know we're going to write in all sorts of seasons of our lives and the music will reflect yes that always do you find that the different projects you have allow you to explore the different voices yeah definitely and in fact that's often my key my way in to how that project's going to pan out and also frankly in a mechanistic way that's my way into meeting a deadline because i can go right that's how that's going to sound like i knew with the shakespeare project i did last year there was one song i knew not just what it was going to be about but i knew how i wanted it to sound i knew that the structure that i had was going to be the one i stayed with I, a lot of the work was done when i wasn't writing as you know you do that don't you mm -hmm. so yeah i think and that was like okay i know this is wolf's time but it feels a bit like actually james said it was that song it's called Fatima's Lady Macbeth and James said it's like the love child of Chris Wood and Victoria Wood. <laughs> I now, I, that's, that's my pinnacle. Let's <laughs> put that on every flyer, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm putting that on my CV. Yes. <laughs> 
but you know and actually i think yeah it's, it actually sounds a bit like one of my mum's songs which also fits with that but yeah that's it isn't it you find those you you can try on those different voices and try those different colors on and you can you can decide that it's going to be the flavor of that particular particular project so absolutely yeah definitely so people are going to be listening to this at the end of february what should they be looking out for Oh, I've got, um, so at the beginning of the first lockdown um, in May 2020, I just decided to do a song a day project and I did. So I have this absolute hero mentor, Leon Russelson, who I think is a, a brilliant and one of our most prolific songwriters, not just in the political sphere, but such a brilliant political voice. And uh, I was brought up again with his music, mum's music, Peggy Seeger. You know, that was my kind of, yeah, musical, political um, backdrop. And so I know a lot of um, Leon's songs in the bone, as it were. I, don't, I didn't need to go and learn them, but I had never um, explored the guitar part. So this is very nerdy, but I play guitar and I've played guitar for about 25 years, but I never talk about it. And people never ask me nerdy guitar questions like they ask the boys. Do you know what I mean? I, that might be, I might have over-gendered that because um, I need another coffee in a minute. I think I may have, you know, that might be grumpy talking, but it did occur to me, like I can do stuff. I'm not an amazing guitarist, but I have worked really hard at it. So I play in Dad Gad and all Leon's arrangements and by which I mean his songs, I think you get this in folk a lot, his songs are inextricable, I think, from the guitar parts. They're very melodic, very um, composed. They're like Bach or something, his guitar parts. And so they're part of each other. So if I was just going to do a kind of half-hearted version of something, it'd be okay, it'd be a cover. But I actually... Um, transcribed his standard tuning guitar parts and put them in my dad gad tuning and um, that was my little kind of proof that was my imposter syndrome backlash actually that was me going I'm going to show I can play guitar and it was a bit fallible because sometimes I can't quite it's really they're really hard but yeah so that was my challenge and that's coming out as um, an album which I'm very proud of lots of songs there about things we've talked about actually lots of things about feminism and relationships and motherhood and growing up as a woman he's very insightful um so yeah that will be out soon nancy kerr singing leon Russelson. so exciting thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today it's been an absolute pleasure me too i've never really talked about any of this in this way so i'm really grateful for your time and i'm so happy that you're doing it it's going to be really important i know it is Oh, she's just amazing. I'm in love. Thank you so much to Nancy for joining us. We really hope that you enjoyed listening to her insights. And I think we should all take a leaf out of her book, right? Let's don our metaphorical flamethrowers and go and, you know kick some patriarchy let's let's do it but uh if you want to know more about nancy kerr follow what she's doing you'll find her on all the usual usual social outlets and also at nancykerr.co.uk i love that so much i think probably nancy's given us about 15 different t-shirt designs over the course of the things she said um but now on to a segment inspired by some of the funny and frank conversations that lucy and i have had over the past few weeks about how she balances motherhood and gigs um and hearing some stories and anecdotes from top women across the industry 
I'm Catherine Roberts and I've worked on the folk scene for over 25 years now with my husband and musical partner Sean Lakeman and together we've got twin daughters and they've toured with us since they were about four years old and mostly it's been a really pleasurable experience. Um, the, the biggest issues I can ever remember were a couple of incidents of vomiting which was always a delight when you're trying to perform but one I particularly remember was playing at the uh, Marine Theatre in Lyme Regis and I happened to have a solo, which Sean came off stage. And I didn't find out until the whole gig was over, but as he came off stage and went back into the green room to check on the kids, who were only about five or six at the time, he discovered that Poppy had uh, just that minute thrown up everywhere. And he, he, he stayed, he cleared it all up, settled her down again, and then came back and carried on with the gig. And I had no clue it was going on, and thank goodness. But for the most part... I think I've enjoyed taking the kids on tour. They love it. They come out and they sell CDs for us. They've learned to chat with people and to interact and be sociable. And, and it's been a really quite a, a positive experience for us as parents. Hello, I'm Debs Hannah. I'm one half of the folk duo Megson. The other half is my husband, Stu, and together we are also parents to our daughter, Lola, who is now nine. Being a musician and a mum is fantastic, but it does have its challenges, the main one being childcare. The times that we need our childcare are often evenings and weekends, so it's quite tricky and we have to often rely on friends and family to help us out. Sometimes Lola does come with us to gigs and festivals, and one such time was at the lovely Llama Tree Festival in 2013, when she was just two. We took our folding camper and we went for the whole weekend. Our good friends Jade and Cliff from the band The Willows, they came with us too to help look after Lola whilst we were performing on stage. I remember it was a hot weekend and it was really tiring having a toddler and working at the same time. But we enjoyed it anyway. And the highlight came at the end of our last set of the festival. We'd finished the set and had come off stage to the waiting Lola, but of course the audience wanted an encore, so we needed to go back on stage. As we walked back on, Lola decided she wanted to follow us, and Pooh Jay didn't know whether she should run after her or let her come on. As it was a encore, I said it didn't matter, and so Lola took her place in the middle of us while we sang. She was totally nonplussed by the several hundred people watching her and delighted them all with a dance and a bit of whistle playing. I loved that she thought it was totally normal to be on stage entertaining people and of course the audience loved it too. She's a bit older now and she still does come with us to some of the gigs but I'm not sure she would storm on stage now. Her job now, which she really enjoys, is working the merch table which is really handy actually. And I'm sure the time will come again when she will join us on stage. And I, for one, can't wait. Hello, I'm Jackie Oates and I'm an English folk singer. I have two children, um, Rosie, who is now five, and Paddy, who is two. And my favourite story relates to Lucy and a project that we were involved in a few years ago called The Penguin Book of English Folk Songs. It was um, looking at songs from that book and performing them. So 
being a mother and balancing gigging and teaching is exhausting and you're sleep deprived and relying on coffee <laughs> and one particular time we had a gig in December with the band and we hadn't rehearsed for months so it was agreed that the band would meet at my house and we'd have a rehearsal and then we'd all drive on to the gig um, and I was exhausted because my daughter had been up all night and I was preoccupied with tidying the house and making sure that someone could look after her. So when we set off for the gig, I put the wrong address into my phone because there are several folk clubs of this name and ended up driving down the M4 during rush hour, thinking, hang on, I've been driving for two hours and the rest of the band said it would take an hour and a half to get to the venue. So I drove to Chepstow, stopped in the services and thought I'm just going to check the address of this gig and to my horror I was in completely the wrong county and the gig was in the opposite direction so I looked at the sat nav and it said time to get to the gig three hours and the gig was due to start at 7.30 and I would be getting to the gig at 7.30 so I got back in my car and I drove all the way back up the M4, past the turning to my house and onto the gig, lost the pub where the venue was, eventually found the right one and then rushed onto stage and I was so overwhelmed that I couldn't remember the words of the songs or the arrangements and it was all a bit of a car crash really. Um, I was so grateful for the band for being understanding. And then um, after the gig, we were all staying in this sort of block of rooms. I think it was on a golf course or something. And Lucy and I went to find our room and the lift broke. And so, <laughs> just the bizarre nature of the fact that I'd really, really cocked up getting to this gig because I was tired. Lucy was anxious because her baby and her mum were staying in a room of this hotel and she couldn't get to them because she was trapped in a lift for half an hour. Um, so yeah, that's a very typical story of just how tired we are trying to spin all these plates and juggle these balls, but it is really worth it. <laughs> when Jackie sent in this uh, this anecdote, it really made me smile and laugh because that gig, I mean, she says that it was rubbish. She was actually a champion. I would have been like a puddle on the floor trying to play after the day that she'd had. And, uh, and she sang beautifully and we made it through. But actually that gig, it just gets kind of um, more surreal and awful, actually, because it was um, the gig that I've experienced, some of the worst misogyny I've ever experienced in a gig, where just before I went on stage, one of the committee members um, decided to tell me that he thought that I would look so much better if I just wore the flower garlands that were decorating my merch stall and decided to only wear that. And uh, it was... Um, 
it was uh, not what I expected to hear just before I stepped on stage, to be honest. And then to add insult to injury, right? Jackie says, rightly, we did, we did. We got stuck in the lift for about half an hour. Uh, James Finlay's uh, partner, Penny, saved us. But it, it, as it turns out, my mum and at that time, like six, six month old son had also been stuck in the lift that night and they hadn't even bothered to put a sign on saying it was out of order. It was just insane <laughs> it sounds like one of the worst possible episodes of faulty towers right <laughs> where someone is prancing around saying stuff that's completely out of kilter completely bad taste no one thinks it's funny and yet nobody calls it out for what it is because nobody quite knows how to coupled with an archaic hotel experience by the sounds of it <laughs> Yes. I really hope they've decommissioned their lift or got it fixed uh, <laughs> since you last visited. But who knows? Maybe women and their children are still getting stuck in that lift every single day of the week. Henceforth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? It was a baptism of fire for mine and Jackie's friendship, and it's been solid ever since. So thank you so much uh, to Jackie, Catherine and Debs for sharing your brilliant anecdotes on the highs and lows and joys of being mums in music oh and i'm sure we'll be hearing loads more from some of those women across the course of the podcast as well um, but finally last but by absolutely no means least wanting to ensure this is a space for women across the industry um, and platforming the voices of not just musicians but also those working more behind the scenes we caught up with the absolutely formidable stevie smith to learn more about her journey in the industry <laughs> Stevie, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, good evening. It's great to have you here on the show. I was trying to work out when we first met. It was probably 2011, 2012, I think. Does that make sense for you? I think it's, obviously it was when you had your first album out. That's coming up for, for a big anniversary, isn't it? So yeah, you were sort of touring that first album when we first put you on. Yeah, 10 years, 10 years of, uh, of friendship and you yeah. just being just such a solid progressor of our scene. So I was really pleased when you said that you'd come on the show and, and share your insights with us. When we first met, you were running a Union Music Records store in Lewis and that kind of led you down a path of all sorts of uh, different uh, wild and wonderful musical outlets so I wondered if you'd give us like a potted history of the last decade Stevie. <laughs> yeah. yeah so I mean I've worked in probably retail and sort of entertainment type things all my life on and off but but mostly sort of in fashion type things but in 2010 my then husband who's a musician had sort of fantasized about having a record shop and my background in retail meant that that, that could actually come to fruition and so this lovely little funny shop, which you, you've seen, came um, available and the, the stars aligned and I couldn't hold off anymore. So we opened this little record shop and we decided to make it like a extended version of our record collection. So it was focusing purely on folk, Americana and country music. So Roots Music Record Shop really specialised and it had a stage and we sold like folky blankets and cowboy boots and really wanted to make it a shop, a record shop 
that women like to come into. That was kind of like my main kind of thing. Like this shop's got to be open. It's got to be airy and women have got to feel really comfortable to come browse for records because the idea that women don't have record shops is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> there's enough record shops that women feel really weirdly weird when they're in them. I know I've been in some of them. So yeah, that was, that was how the record shop opened. And very quickly uh, that kind of moved into promoting live music in the in the area and we we made a really great live music scene in our town and open mic nights and folk nights in local pubs and it just kind of went from one thing to the other and then I got a call from one of the agents that I booked through to say look we're we're starting this thing called the Americana Music Association and we'd love you to come and be on the board and I think at the time I mean I'm not sure this is true, but this is my theory, is that they they suddenly thought, wait a minute, we haven't got enough women on the board because they probably looked around the room and it was all men and thought, who do we know who could, who's a woman we could get in? But once I was in, there's no turning back really. So yeah, from, from there onwards, the American Music Association developed. And for the start of it, I continued to do the shop and continued to do the promoting, but it got more and more difficult to do all three of those elements. And we started doing this big festival in London, Americana Fest in 2016. And that's when it became really hard for me to figure out how to keep two jobs going. Three, really. So sold the record shop. I can't remember when, actually. 2018. Sold the record shop to really good friends. That was really lovely because it's like handing over the baby to the to the really great babysitters. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> love the guys who've taken it over. I mean, it's definitely lost an element of the this shops for women kind of thing because we all had female staff but it's still a fantastic record shop and it's still got that essence the guys are brilliant I love them it's really nice when you create a business that comes really from your heart that when you get someone to buy it from you and take it over that they they understand that and that's what the guys have done so the record shop's lovely and it's in my town so I get to go and buy records there excellent so you still get to top it up yeah I still get to have an influence because I was like, have you got this record? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's sort of it in a nutshell, really. And now I basically full-time run the American Music Association. Amazing. And I think in all of this, Stevie, one of the key things to recognise, so we were chatting to Nancy and exploring the theme of motherhood. So, you know, you say you had three full-time jobs, but actually it sounds like you had four jobs, right? I mean, they're they're, they're grown-ups now. I mean, when I opened the record shop, I'm trying to think how many of them still lived at home. Three lived at home, but they were teenagers and, you know. They're harder, surely? Yeah, I guess so. But I don't know. It's just, oh, they're just great. I mean, I love my kids. And, and they've kind of known me to be a bit of a crazy full on mum. I mean, when, when they were little, I thought, what am I going to do? I've got four kids on my own. I better do a job that means I can look after four children. So I trained to be a teacher. And I was a primary school teacher when they were little, but the main reason I did that was so that I could have the same holiday as them. But actually I lost weekends because teachers' jobs are insane and I was marking all weekend. And then I hadn't, I hadn't factored this in, but when you're a teacher, you don't get to go to your own children's nativity plays or any of their school concerts or anything. So I missed out, I missed out a lot. So yeah, even though, yeah, what is the ideal job when you have kids? But when you work for yourself, you can be a little bit more in control of those kind of things. So yeah, I, I think I managed to balance that with the with the kids. It sounds like it freed you up to give you more of that balance, right? Were there things though that you think were still tricky or reflections you've got on the challenges that other mums might face in the industry? 
it's really hard because obviously I'm I'm on I'm on one side of that industry whereas I'm not actually like on the road like I, but we opened up a home to to touring artists so if we promoted them they stayed here and if it was a a mum who a parent you know dad's suffered too you know I, I I've had Americans here who've slept next to their iPad with their wives on the screen sleeping next to each other you know everyone suffers that element of missing home don't they but mums probably suffer a, a kind of unique sense of missing home but also guilt I think that that that's probably what we all suffer from as mums in any job um, is guilt and when you're a musician or, or work in the music industry and you're away from home a lot those are the kind of things that you probably suffer that men don't which is like I've chosen this career have I done the wrong thing and all of those kind of questions obviously you know we need to battle with those things all the time because none of those uh, should have a place in, in our minds but they do but but I did always try to make mums feel comfortable touring and like always say you can bring your kids with you or if you've got um, a babysitter we'll put them up and you know I haven't been a mum I happen to have camping cots for babies and <laughs> everything so you know and also like trying to make gigs earlier so that they could be with their kids you know I had the birds of Chicago one time when when their little girl luckily they're couples so they could travel with their baby when she was tiny but Ali had to rush off stage she sound checked with baby um, in headphones did the first set ran into the Green room, which was probably like a broom cupboard in all reality. Fed the breastfed the baby, <laughs> ran back out, did the second set, signed some CDs, and then quickly back to our house to feed her again. You know, that's kind of like reality. But uh, but having been a mum of four, um, and a, I'll just add, and a grandma of five now, I can I can actually really really relate to that. And I think having a promoter. Who can really relate to what you're going through probably is a nice thing for parents on the on the road. It certainly is like you describing Alison Russell's scenario then was just like every gig I've done for the last four years, essentially. Although I haven't been down to Lewis and played a gig with you since I've had babies, I don't think. But No, because I haven't been promoting, otherwise you would have. Of course, yeah. Well, you know, we're one day we'll meet in that space again, your beautiful home. But it is certainly, from my perspective, it, it can be very difficult when you don't have a promoter who can really kind of lean into that sense of what support you need when you're touring with your children. Because quite often, like you described that scenario, her brain space will have been, my baby's hungry, my baby needs feeding. Or, oh dear, I'm leaking on stage. Yeah, there's that issue as well. <laughs> <laughs> that thing of like I appreciate the audience I want to give them a great show but actually my brain and my heart is somewhere else for a lot of it in those very very early tiny days and having a promoter who understands that you need a private space or you know that when you get back home to the accommodation you don't necessarily want to talk you just need to vegetate and be brought cups of tea while you nurse your baby and stuff so not time for a party or cracking open a whiskey <laughs> Which I know a lot of promoters think, oh, I'm going to promote a gig so I can have a have a party with the artists afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's... Um, I think audiences in the Roots music scene really love... They do love a family band on the road. It's endearing. And I think, you know, in that way, we're lucky in the genre that we work in. Yes. Because there's, there's this truth, isn't there? There's, we're constantly talking about the truth in your songs this re this relationship that you have with your audience and and what you're portraying through your music and that 
when you're a family band on the road or your mum on the road, you you share a little bit more of that truth. And I think it is something that luckily in our genre that that the, they they appreciate and understand and they give you that space for it, which is really nice. That is true. That is true. Oh, so obviously we've been navigating a very strange year for our industry and um, a lot of musicians have spent a lot more time with their family than they ever would and they've had summers at home which they never had and all those kind of things but I mean do you think that that there has been a particular impact on mothers and families navigating the pandemic in this industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always try to look for silver linings and there definitely are some, but I do think that they have had to do a couple of jobs because, I mean, uh, you know, mothers across the board actually have, have, and dads have had to work full time and be teachers. But when you, when you, when you log in to go to work and you work in the bank and you, you, you can do your day's work or whatever, but when you're an artist, I think there's this sense of having to let go of that and not see it as a nine to five because you don't have that same routine that you might have had if you were touring or you're going into the studio. So that thing about um, mothers now, artists having to kind of just be able to still keep hold of their sense of themselves as an artist is really important. But I do think that the silver lining of it is that you haven't had to go on the road. Um, so you have been able to spend that time with the kids, which has probably been quite relaxing in sense of not having to try and figure all that out. But also maybe more time to write, um, be a little bit more creative and, and also maybe to get a bit of grounding for artists that are probably being really on the road a lot and having to keep up a certain tempo of like recording, releasing, touring. Um, having to kind of let that go might have given a lot of mums that sense of sort of like grounding again and just figuring it out properly. So I think there's been there's been a lot of struggles, but also some positives. I was going to say it's really interesting because I think that's one of the things Nancy talked about a lot is that sense of like actually just freeing up a bit of time and a bit of space to take a step back and recognise that it doesn't always have to be at 100 miles an hour. You can do it at kind of... 80 miles an hour and that's enough and I think that's something the industry really needs to hold on to going forward definitely definitely and I, and I think and it's really there is really space for that you know obviously financially it might be more difficult because you know when we're going 100 miles an hour um you do earn earn that bit more money but I think that maybe that sense of if I don't carry on at this pace people will forget me or I won't still be relevant you know and I think maybe we've all realized everyone stopped and we're all still relevant so let's keep that in mind like you don't have to you don't have to keep keep going keep being present keep pushing yourself in the same way you know we've all discovered so many new ways to be present and be relevant and relate and connect and those you know we those kind of things I think going forward would be really important for mums to kind of think you know, I, I, I've worked my whole life being a mum. I, I, when, when I had my first child, who's now 32, I lived in Holland and you don't actually really get, you didn't really get to stop back then. So you had six weeks, basically, that was it. So I remember going back to work after six weeks. And that's like, if I think about it now, that's crazy. He was still just absolutely tiny, tiny. Um, so that whole, that whole thing of being a mum and being a working mum and you miss so much. 
you, you miss so much of those little developments, those little moments in your child's life. Um, and, you know, ultimately what's really important about being a mom, well, it's, been, it's, it's not missing those moments that give you joy, you know? And so if you can find those at the same time as keeping your own identity as a person and not just that identity as a mum, because it's really, everyone's got to find that balance. And hopefully people have had a moment to find that balance. But <laughs> saying that, I'm sure there's been a tipping point to where they've been at home a little bit too much. I mean, we've all been at home a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all have. It's very true. But wise words spoken, lady. Thank you so much for sharing your views on that and hard-won insight over the years. So you mentioned the Americana Music Association and the festival that you've been running. You've just come hot off a really amazing success with that in January. Um, it just went down a storm. But we wanted to talk to you about gender balance because I know that's been something in your mind. Have you achieved it, Stevie? Yeah, yeah, totally have. And I'm really proudly to say four years in a row now. Um, so it's, and, and you know what? Wasn't hard. It really wasn't. So anyone listening to this who thinks they can't do it, I'm just going to say, find me up, because I'll tell you, you can. And, and PRS launched the key change um, in, ooh, when was it now? 2017, I want to say. And basically the key change pledge from the PRS was, can you make your festival 50-50 gender balance by 2022? If you can, sign this pledge now. And I went to the board and said, we can do this. So we signed the pledge. We were like in the first 100 um, international festivals to sign up. We more or less did it that year because it was just like, do you know what? When you want to do something like that, you just have to really think about it. And when you're booking speakers for your panels... Do you, when you've got two men then you just know well now I've got to get two women it's as simple as that when you've got your lineup you count you know I've got color coding when I'm booking my festival lineup and if it gets out of out of balance then we rethink and we don't book that that male band but we go and find a great female band and you know it's it's not this whole thing that people say about oh they're not on the road or they're not available and you know that might be the case of huge massive headline acts I don't know I, I don't mix in those circles <laughs> but um do you know what's happened because we did we've done it because we've put those women on stage uh, the way that our awards work is that our membership nominate and our membership vote and so the membership put um, nominations forward the board then selects you know on there's a whole list of criteria as to who gets nominated from what what the members suggest and then they get to vote and 2020 every single member voted award was won by women and this year it was half half and half and it's just like you put that idea forward and it pays it rolls on you snowball effect that thing so you know this year with with black lives matter um we've had diversity kind of like gone oh my god we really haven't done enough you know wait we've done this great thing with gender and it really wasn't that difficult and now we've got to do this with diversity and we just achieved so much of that as well and I'm just like anything any decision that you make about these things you just have to be determined you can do it and and there are so many incredible female artists in the roots well there's no excuse for there not to be lineups that are at least 50-50 gender balance. And, and when I say we've achieved it before years running, actually the last two years we were tipped more towards the women. <laughs> I'm going to have men sort of knocking on my door saying, this isn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
mean, you might, but it's that Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing, isn't it? That she won't rest until there are eight women. Actually, it's been male-dominated for however many years we've been running festivals. So pipe down, go home and come back to us in a hundred year when we've had women at the front, surely? <laughs> you know, like, again, that for me is also quite simple. Like, you've had the power for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And our board is, our board is also balanced. So we've got, you know, equal men's women on the board. But actually, the festival for... The last three years, it's been me at the helm and I've had my next in command's always been a woman as well. And and that hasn't that hasn't necessarily been a decision that we made, but it's just naturally that person's fallen into the role of the perfect person. And yeah, so our team, our main designer was a woman. Yeah, we really, really, we really, really push for it. And, and like I said, it's not hard and it's fantastic. And it's, it's really the only environment I want to work in anyway, where it's gender balanced. I don't want to be sitting there as the only woman with a room full of men. That would not be fun. Hell yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, sounds sounds amazing. I think it's also proof from what you're saying, right? The minute you kind of start something, you know, you do it by saying, actually, we want this bit to be gender balanced. Everything else then starts to fall into place around it without so much engineering. You engineer one bit and everything else follows through. Like, and that that's where the power lies, I guess, in doing that kind of thing. Yeah, and do you know what and do you know what we noticed in 2020 when we were allowed to have have people in in a room? Um the the, the audiences were getting more gender balanced. You know, and we all know we all know the roots world Americana folk is very has been historically a very male-dominated audience and a slightly older male-dominated audience, you know, and I'm not saying anything against those audiences because we all love our audiences full stop, but to see women, more women coming to gigs and feeling safe in an environment where they can come and enjoy music and talk um, with authority about what they've seen and join in with the conversation is just a really important thing. And I think you constantly think about what you present on stage to the people who are watching it, it will then change. You know, there's going to be that woman in the audience, there's going to be that person in the audience who sees the black female female lead singer and thinks, wait, I can be that person, you know? So you have to continuously, if you don't put women on stages, then you're not going to get your next generation of female artists. So we have to do it. It's our responsibility as promoters and festival organisers to do it. We just have to. I mean, everything we were talking about just before you joined us on this call, you've said, which is brilliant, right? Like, it says it's key. So going back full circle, do you have a favourite folk song on the theme of motherhood that you would share with us? I do. Do you know what? There's a, the, I, there's lots, but the one that, that will definitely make me ha- break down in tears, which I think is always a sign of a great folk song, is um, Two Mothers by Ohuli and Tido. Wonderful choice. That's an incredible song. We'll make sure that we put it on our Spotify playlist so more people can hear it if they haven't already found the great work of Ohuli and Tido. It's a very special song. Great. I love it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you, Stevie. You. just brilliant thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week learn more about stevie and the americana music association via the amauk.org and at the risk of sounding like a boring feminist killjoy i'm gonna remind you to check out all of our social media platforms including facebook twitter and instagram and that's also the place where you will find this month's spotify playlist bringing you a range of songs on the theme of music and motherhood from voices across the industry
we feel that we'd be remiss for not mentioning that it's been a really hard week to be a woman, to be a feminist, to be an activist. And we wanted to respond to the news of Sarah Everard in some way. And so we've recorded a second podcast that's also out today and um, that you can find on all of our usual platforms, including a statement from Pinky and a song from Katie Rose Bennett. And it's also important to mention that we had already planned to bring you a theme next month looking at the Trad Stands With Her movement and also talking to other women across the folk industry who have had experiences of harassment and sexual violence. We're opening with our first ep episode with the wonderful Bit Collective who started the hashtag Trad Stands With Her movement, exploring women's safety in the folk industry. In the meantime, until then, go well and take good care of yourselves. Bye for now. Thank Folk for Feminism is a Betty Beetroot production. <laughs>